Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji. On this week's show, we're excited to bring you my conversation with Jeff Lewis, managing partner of Bedrock Capital. Prior to starting Bedrock, Jeff was a longtime partner at Founders Fund. Many from the industry know Jeff and Bedrock for their investing in companies and founders that are often non-consensus. And in particular, they popularized the notion of investing in narrative violations. As he always says, Jeff was candid about how they think about diligence and founder relationships, how they optimize to have constructive civil discourse at the investment committee level, and his non-consensus views on venture capital and technology. This was a fun one. So let's get into the episode right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Brex. Brex offers smart financial solutions to help startups scale, including a high-limit corporate credit card and a no-fee business account. Brex understands what founders need and has innovated on traditional financial systems to help you manage your finances more easily so you can focus on building, not banking. You can rely on Brex for everything you need to scale fast with live support at the ready, a great mobile app, and zero paperwork. Open a corporate card and business account and make your first deposit in minutes at brex.com forward slash venture. Even better, you'll earn uncapped points on every purchase from day one, redeemable for your first choice of rewards, including crypto. Get started at brex.com forward slash venture. If you're investing in private companies, then you need to know about Sidecar, the latest player in venture tech. Sidecar is on a mission to enable anybody to be a capital allocator by creating tools built specifically for today's venture investor. Their powerful software removes the headache of organizing private investments so that you can focus on making deals, not spreadsheets. Whether you're syndicating your first or 50th deal, Sidecar X is your silent operating partner, handling all back office functions in a single place. Sidecar always has your back so that you never have to worry about chasing subdocs, lost wires, or late K1s. In the spring of 2021, as private market activity continued, we launched Allocate, and Sidecar was an instrumental part of our success. Their products supported our fundraise in a way that delighted my investors and kept me apprised in real time throughout the process. Their platform allowed Allocate to close our seed round efficiently and effectively, so we could get back to our mission of increasing access to top private alternatives. Visit sidecar.io to learn more and join the waitlist for their limited beta. Hey, Jeff, it's so great to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Samir. Great to be here. So I've been pretty psyched about having this conversation because you have so many non-consensus views in a world that seems to be very consensus. Before we get into the story of Bedrock and things like the narrative violation, let's go pre-Bedrock. You were at Founders Fund. I know you and your partner had known each other. You had invested in his company back in 2012. And I always feel like these formative stories and starting a firm, there's many conversations that precede that between the partners. And there's usually like a blank sheet of paper or whiteboard that sort of maps out what the firm is going to be, what the values are. Take us behind the scenes and maybe just start off a little bit with your background and then what did that blank piece of paper look like when you and Eric were looking at it? Yeah, I mean, my, my background was very non, I'd say pretty non-conventional for, for a venture capitalist. So grew up in Canada, started my career in, in brand management at Procter & Gamble, uh, selling laundry detergent, living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And out of the corner of my eye in 2000 and uh, sort of late 2006, I started getting really obsessed with Facebook as sort of a, a business opportunity. And I was trying to convince my team at, at P&G to launch a Facebook marketing campaign and ended up 
maneuvering my way to the Bay Area uh, with PNG as sort of a geographical transfer and just managed to meet a number of sort of the folks in and around Silicon Valley at the time building companies uh, and ultimately was inspired to start a company, uh, which ended up becoming Top Guest, where I was the co-founder and CEO. Uh, that business was enterprise SaaS for loyalty programs. Our customers were hotels and airlines. This was back in 2009, 2010. And when I was building Top Guest, I actually met uh, my now partner here at Bedrock, Eric Stromberg. So he reached out to me uh, when he was a senior at Duke University in the context of wanting to break into tech. He'd been interning at Goldman Sachs, wanted to join a startup and was curious about joining my startup and ended up uh, telling him that joining my startup wasn't a very good idea because we weren't tracking that well. We ended up eking out a semi-decent exit and selling the business, getting our investors a two to three X on their money. Long-winded way of saying one of my investors in Top Guest was Founders Fund. And uh, after I sold the business, they ended up hiring me initially as a principal and I was subsequently promoted to partner. But before I made the decision to join Founders Fund, rewind all the way back to early 2012, right after I'd sold Top Guest, Eric and I actually discussed starting a venture capital firm at that moment in time. Uh, in 2012, I just sold Top Guest. He had been working for Chris Dixon at Hunch, Chris Dixon's early machine learning startup. And uh, we were like, you know what? We should. We love working together. We really like each other. Let's let's consider starting an early stage VC firm. Ultimately, uh, Founders Fund was too good of an opportunity for me to pass up, so I ended up doing that. Eric ended up starting Oyster, which I invested in via Founders Fund. And then after he sold that business to Google uh, in 2015, I carved out $10 million from Founders Fund 5 for him to co-invest alongside me and Founders Fund as our first scout. And so we really worked through all sorts of experiences, challenges, opportunities together, initially as friends in the tech industry, then as me being on the board of his startup Oyster, lots of ups and downs. It ultimately wasn't a hugely successful outcome, but we did manage to get a sale to Google. And then as co-investors, uh, with me sort of mentoring him, him learning from me via osmosis while I was a partner at Founders Fund, fast forward to very late 2017, decided we, that the time was right for us to, to go out and try and build something of our own with Bedrock. It was a really hard decision, but uh, here we are four years in and, and things have been going well. When you were working together in different contexts, both as you know friends and then investing in his company and then ultimately him co-investing as effectively an angel you know, alongside you. What were some of those characteristics that you shared in vision, uh, maybe parts of the vision that you shared that just led you both to believe, hey, we're the right people to do this together? Yeah, I mean, you always want to, my, my view on this is you want to work with people where the values are very similar, but the ways those values manifest in the world and the way in which sort of the areas you spike on are different and complementary. And so in the case of Eric and I, we both have just a deep passion for technology and for entrepreneurs. So that is a core shared value. We both are very much people who like to try and understand the truth in the world. And we don't always subscribe to the idea that sort of the conventional narrative uh, is the truth. And so we're very curious people. We're always going down rabbit holes into different sectors, different opportunities. We love unpacking and deconstructing a technology or deconstructing a business. Uh, but then we spike in very different areas. We have very different strengths and quite honestly, different weaknesses. I, in my case, I get really keyed into underwriting the entrepreneurs as people. So I am super passionate about spending a few days 
literally at an entrepreneur's office, like hours and hours each day, really understanding what makes them tick, understanding the people on the team, why they made those decisions to hire those people, really understanding the entrepreneur psychology of are they going to take this business all the way and what makes this specific entrepreneur, this specific team tick. Eric is very logical, very pragmatic, very analytical, uh, and really is spikes on unpacking sort of those pieces of an actual business. And then our third partner here, uh, Spencer, who joined us as a principal and has sort of grown over the last two plus years on the Bedrock team, is just like a quantitative uh, savant who's, who excels at really, once a business is actually really working and growing, doing that deep quantitative analysis. So I'm much more like the crazy idea qualitative guy because somewhere in the middle and then Spencer is like the hardcore quant and it makes for a, a pretty a pretty dynamic team, but we all are anchored in this shared value of trying to find companies, find entrepreneurs that are underestimated or overlooked because they're doing something profoundly counter narrative. And we want to invest at that specific moment in time uh, when the business is contra to, to popular narratives. I would say that Bedrock has done a great job branding itself. And you've, you've wrote a great letter around searching for narrative violations. For the, those that don't know, what does a narrative violation mean in the context of investing in early stage startups? It, it, it really depends on the company. So there actually isn't a formula. There's a method to finding them that we have, but there's not a formula. So I can give you several different examples. You know, Flock Safety would be an investment where we initially led a Series A1 round back in 2018, right after we'd launched our first fund. It's a, a hardware-enabled uh, subscription for crime-solving technology. So they monetize via SaaS subscription, but their Trojan horse is a camera that has uh, license plate reading and other computer vision uh, capabilities. At the time, this was way before the Peloton IPO. The narrative was like hardware is just way too hard. These hardware-enabled subscription things don't work. You'd had Fitbit, you'd had GoPro, both of those had sort of imploded to various degrees. And so Flock, both the type of business it was, a hardware-enabled subscription, as well as the opportunity around being a technology company that solves crime, that was not seen as a big opportunity. So we had a differentiated view on both hardware-enabled subscriptions and a differentiated view on crime is going to be a huge problem, and we need technology that helps to solve crimes uh, in the most unbiased ways possible. And when you actually have you know, computer vision, machine learning, helping to solve crime, you can really help to eliminate bias in policing, as well as capture a very meaningful uh, percentage of the $100 billion a year that we here in the United States spend on, on police. So that was sort of a classical narrative violation point of entry. Now, Fast forward four years with Flock, it's now conventionally seen as good. It's, it's clearly working. It's, it's, it's sort of an obviously good business. But when we invested, it was definitely a narrative violation. And then there can be sort of weird dynamics around a financing round where even if the company is sort of obviously working and obviously good, there can be just one dynamic that's like one degree weird, which makes it counter narrative enough. Rippling would be an example of that for us, where basically we invested in 2019. I'd gotten to know Parker over you know, several years uh, prior, uh, and we invested on an uncapped note. And I'd been trained through my years as a VC before starting Bedrock, never do uncapped notes. And so when Eric and I started Bedrock and launched in 2018, I said to him, we're never investing on an uncapped note. Uh, and I was catching up with Parker Conrad, the Rippling CEO. He's like, the only way for you to invest is be an uncapped note. 
I was like, you know what? Screw it. This is like the one exception to the rule. We're going to do it. And finding those exceptions to the rule and executing on them with precision at like the exact right moment in time, that is a narrative violation. Now, the challenge is they aren't set in stone. So narrative violation doesn't mean distress. It doesn't mean not working. So something could be a narrative violation one month and three months later be consensus amazing. And Vercel is an example from our portfolio of that, where we initially got involved Vercel for context as a front-end web development platform, development, hosting, et cetera. Uh, we invested initially in 2020 in the Series B when they had phenomenal quasi-religious adoption amongst developers, amazing, uh, the product was amazing. They hadn't yet proven the enterprise sales motion. And so we invested basically based on traction with developers, but it's sort of, you know, an open source company and they hadn't proven the enterprise sales motion. So it was counter narrative at that moment in time. Fast forward to today and Vercel's raised, uh, you know, three rounds since we initially invested in the Series B, one of which we led on it's no longer a narrative violation. And so for us, it's like being nimble to get in at a specific moment in time when something for whatever reason is, is counter narrative. And it can be a very subtle reason for us. Well, you know, in today's world where there's so much capital and last year, $128 billion was raised by venture firms and a lot of these mega funds have been raising capital and largely investing in things that are fairly obvious and don't fall into the world of non-consensus. When you are looking at these effectively narrative violation companies, and you just mentioned a number of examples across different type of metrics of what makes it a narrative violation, but let's go to FlockJ, for example. When you are searching for these companies, are you searching around a theme? And in that case, were you looking for something that was related to crime and hardware and where you had a thesis around something like that and then looked for companies? Or is it usually you find a company that comes to you that looks a little bit different and then you build a non-consensus view from the rest of the market and, and actually make the investment? Genuinely, it's 50-50. And so I'd say half of it is thesis driven. So in the case of Flock Safety, the thesis wasn't crime. The thesis was, we want hardware-enabled SaaS. And so we were looking, and, and Eric actually initiated this, is like, we should be looking at hardware-enabled SaaS. It's very non-consensus. There are great businesses to be built. And we did like a scouring of the landscape and met 50 hardware-enabled SaaS companies, identified Flock as being the one we wanted. We had just missed the Series A. Uh, Ilya over at Matrix had led it. And we're like, we need to get in now. Once it's working, it's going to be too late for us as a new firm back then. He's never going to take our money. The team's never going to take our money unless we get in when it's non-consensus. So we flew down to Atlanta to basically uh, convince him to take a preemptive Series A one. Uh, in the case of Vercel, it was highly opportunistic. Uh, the founder, Gijerm, had reached, uh, reached out to me on Twitter after seeing me on television and I was just really, you know, we spent several hours together in San Francisco and I was just really taken aback by him as a founder, uh, by his vision for the company, such that when they came to market with their next round, all of us on the investment team here at Bedrock, myself, Eric Spencer, were like ready to pounce, dug in. And then we led an opportunistic Series C once Enterprise ARR had really inflected on that business after initially investing in the B. So it's 50% opportunistic, 50% highly thesis-driven. And when it's thesis-driven, we generally are only making one or two investments in a space. Flock is our only investment in crime. I think it's also our only hardware-enabled subscription company. I'm not 100% sure, but I think so. In defense, we have a few investments, but they all do very different things. That's another sector where we had a thesis 
Uh, we've got Epirus, we've got Modern Intelligence, and we've got Onderel. All of those do very different things in defense, but we had a thesis view around defense technology that we pursued over 18 months. Uh, but our door is always open for crazy ideas coming our way. And uh, we've tried to deliberately build sort of an N of one type brand voice that will attract weird founders doing weird things because we always want our door to be open for these weird, idiosyncratic people. We want them to think of Bedrock and come, and come speak with us. I, I like the notion of looking at things that are idiosyncratic, esoteric, and maybe finding those things that you know the vast majority of the market may not see at the time you're looking at it. Going back to something that you said earlier around the team, and it's interesting that different things spike each of you and where your skill sets are, with you being more in, you know, you've, you've been on Twitter around being a vibe capitalist, really, which is foundationally, is there a level of synergy between you and, you and the founder and the founding team? You have someone like Eric that's very analytical, and there's somebody that on your team is very quantitative in nature. And when you're looking at deals that are different, my guess is in many cases, you have very different opinions because you're, you're approaching it in very different lenses. And in those situations, take us through the anatomy of an internal conversation and how decision-making is reconciled. We're always trying to improve it as the starting point, since we always want to get the decisions right. And we always want to adjust the decision-making model based on that, you know, ex post data on the quality of the past decisions. But I'd say the general tenor is whoever sort of drives an opportunity needs to really drive the analysis and drive the debate internally. Uh, and then we each, you know, weigh in and we each look at it from our own lens. And so a great example of this would be something like Pot Menu, which my partner, uh, Spencer Peterson, uh, sourced, where we led the Series B. Pot Menu is basically Shopify for restaurants. We invested in the depths of COVID when everyone thought restaurants were going to be dead forever. And this is a conventional sort of vertical enterprise SaaS business where if it was just the Jeff Lewis fund, I never would have taken the meeting. I never would have met with this company. I never would have looked at some like, hey, another vertical enterprise SaaS company, like not interesting to me. I, I can't get excited about that personally as Jeff Lewis. But Spencer put together just like a super robust analysis on actually, this can be a multi-billion dollar company. It is a hyper counter narrative moment in time to invest. Restaurants are going to bounce back. These founders are A plus, here's why. And we had like a series of debates in like October, November, 2020 about this company. And ultimately I was convinced by Spencer and Eric, hey, we, we've got to do this. In a, a counter example to this would be something like, you know, let, let's take say Epirus where I went deep down this rabbit hole on uh, microwave power technology for counter UAS, counter unmanned aerial systems. I had a few friends that had helped to incubate this company, Epirus, which is you know fundamentally a hardware defense startup. And I'm like, this is next level technology. I love this team, even though it looks really weird. And internally, people were like, okay, but Jeff, it's going to take them forever to get revenue. It's highly capital intensive. You're competing against the defense primes. And all of these objections were raised and we debated through those over like many months and spent several cycles with the team and ultimately gained the conviction, which is, I guess, a bit of a roundabout way of saying it is consensus driven here, but typically it's the person who's driving the deal has to convince the other people to like say, okay, and specifically Eric and I, because we're the investment committee. So whoever's driving the, the deal 
you know, needs to convince the other person, okay, even if you have objections, here is my logical, here are my logical counter arguments. And we both ultimately have to get there on, we're going to do this. Very rarely, it's both, obviously, we need to do this. Bitcoin in January 2019 and Ethereum in January 2019, we were both like, okay, obviously, we have to do these via the fund right now. So that's sort of a counterexample. We're both like, yeah, we obviously have to do this right now. But most times, it's like one person is hyper positive and the other is playing the conscientious objector that ultimately like needs to get convinced by the other person for us to do a deal. There's a couple things that stand out to me in what you just said. The first being this radical open-mindedness by everybody in the partnership to consume a point of view from somebody that has a very different lens, whether it's analytical or your own case, really that founder alignment that you have, you know, with a particular founding team. The second is that you exercise openness when it comes to investing. And you mentioned doing things like an uncapped note, which you originally didn't think you were going to do, as well as things like adding crypto. And at least from a consensus view, if you look at it from the LP's perspective, many LPs would say that's too unstructured. It doesn't cater to what we normally see from venture firms. And we like things to be a little bit more tight and rigid when it comes to the way somebody builds a portfolio or at least the investment philosophy. And I know you guys have a very thoughtful investment philosophy. I'm curious in terms of the conversations with the LPs and whether some of the things that you do that express this wider latitude really resonate and how do you get those LPs to really understand how you operate as a firm? The starting point for us is you know, we consider these folks clients. And so I, I actually don't really like the term even LP, like these folks are our clients. And one of the things you have to learn when you're building a firm, like very different from when I was just investing via firm is a big part of this job is actually client services. And so at the end of the day, like we have to serve our clients. And the key for us as we've gone from fund to fund to fund, you know, we're investing out of fund three now, and uh, we, we, we launched our first fund in 2018. The key for us actually has been uh, working with clients where there's like really strong interpersonal chemistry. And so I'd say that's actually the number one thing I've learned when we go do Bedrock 4, when we go do Bedrock 5 or 6. We will be optimizing for interpersonal chemistry with the clients because just as we look for that with our entrepreneurs, we don't have to be the same. And most of the entrepreneurs I really vibe with are hyper different from me, totally different personalities, like totally different backgrounds. That's great. But there is like a chemistry around the shared mission of what those entrepreneurs are doing. The same is true with our clients. We want to be excited about what the mission of the client is. And we want them to be excited about our mission around narrative violations and around finding these you know, non-consensus, idiosyncratic entrepreneurs. And high conviction also is the second piece. Our entry points, while we do have a little bit more latitude, I guess, than a typical VC firm, you know, if you look through our LPA, it's like pretty standard fare. There's nothing like crazy in there. And the key thing for us is like our entry points are typically smaller check size unless we already know the company but then we really do concentrate the capital into the companies as there are more and more proof points that they're like really working over many rounds. So I think clients at this point, we've proven again and again that we can do this correctly. 
So I think at this point, they, they're, they're, they're kind of cool with it. But yeah, you got to like your clients. That's basically my, my short version of the answer. I, it's the first time I've heard of, uh, from, from a GP referring to LPs as clients, but I think it's spot on. And it, it does create that, in, in my mind, it's sort of a DNA of a more aligned relationship between you as a general partner and your, your clients. But tell us a little bit about, you mentioned interpersonal fit between your clients being the LPs and yourself. What does that look like in practice? I mean, in, pr- in practice, it looks like, uh, it looks like we're going to give clients the opportunity to invest if we like them. And in practice, they're not going to invest if they don't like us. And so despite all of our idiosyncrasies and, and the weird uh, portfolios and the, the sort of uh, the fact that there's not a sector focus and we are early stage technology, so we are focused from a stage standpoint. But, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, I think a lot comes down to vibe. And this is why I did that whole uh, speech a few months ago about vibe capitalism, because I think a lot of this does come down to the interpersonal chemistry. And we, you know, that's important for us with the entrepreneurs and it's important for us with the clients. When you think about winning deals in today's environment, when there's so many competitors, so much capital flowing into companies at every single stage, how do you think about the formula for winning consistently? The commonly ascribed ways to win are have great brand, reputation, network, the ability to drive value to portfolio companies, be able to sell, and of course, in certain cases, you know, speed and valuation. If you were to think about all those things and then summarize what are the most important elements that really drive winning consistently, how would you rank those things? Um, I don't actually think any of those are the most important thing to win. I, I think that, so I wouldn't rank them. I would basically say the most important thing to win in today's market is timing. And specifically for us, it is getting in at a moment in time when it's not obviously working, or if it is obviously working for whatever idiosyncratic set of reasons, every other firm on the planet hasn't already honed in on this company or this project. So for us, it's timing, it's being able to mobilize very quickly and get to a decision fast without shortcutting the diligence, which means in practice, we don't make that many investments. So like every portfolio at Bedrock has like 25 to 35 positions. And then our capital is just concentrated in the top one, two, or three positions in every fund over successive rounds. So I think pouncing at the right moment in time to like build that rapport with the entrepreneur and actually get a deal catalyzed is the most important thing. I'd say number two is diligence. And so one of the things that I've learned the hard way, quite honestly, is you can't shortcut the diligence. And so I think we're in a market where people are optimizing for timing at the expense of diligence or optimize, not for timing per se, but speed. People are optimizing for speed at the expense of diligence. In our case, a, a lot of the stuff we do, we already know the entrepreneurs. We've been talking to them or like they've been on our radar for, in some cases, many, many years before we invest, in other cases, several months. But when we don't have a long prehistory, we are like logging in with the entrepreneurs, like into their dashboards, validating the metrics, like doing off-list references. We try to move very quickly without shortcutting the diligence. And I we're, today we're in a zone where like people are just sacrificing diligence for speed to get a deal done. So it's timing. It is 
moving fast once you feel you found something that not everyone else is looking at. Um, and then it's underpinning that with robust diligence and pricing discipline, man. Like I've, I've, you know, again, we've sometimes in every fund, there's one or two deals where it's like, oh, fine investment, but we just, we lack the pricing discipline there. And you've, you've got to be very disciplined on pricing, especially now when we're in this, this flux on the, in the public markets. Yeah. It's interesting because when you started the, the firm, you know, 2017, 18, and that almost feels like the, the stone ages from where we are right now, given the amount of significant change we've had. And we've seen large players that historically were public market investors be incredibly active, deploying in some cases a billion dollars a month into private technology companies. Folks like Tiger, where a lot of people look at them as SoftBank 2.0, but with a different view on diligence. In fact, I think the amount of work they do is pretty significant before actually making an allocation versus just spreading capital around. How has the impact of some of those bigger funders been on you know firms like yourself, which are in mid-cap, I think you're at a billion dollars in AUM, you're growing, but I suspect that there has been impact in terms of how you manage your investments and maybe even beyond you, just the broader market. How, is, how, is the, how have these new entrants really changed things? I'd say that it has eliminated the like awesome shortcuts that used to exist in venture. So there used to be this awesome shortcut where if a name brand, and I learned this, frankly, from Peter Thiel, uh, working under him at Founders Fund. And he had this saying where like if a top tier firm or a name brand firm leads a strong up round on one of you know, your companies, uh, you should always do at least your pro rata, if not, if not more. And I think that that is a rule that I no longer subscribe to because basically you have firms that are just playing very different games. That's not to say their game is not going to work. So I think Tiger's game of building this global technology index fund, I do think that's going to work. I think they're going to be very successful at it. But a tiger up round isn't validation that a portfolio that that price makes sense for a given portfolio company, particularly when you have a very concentrated portfolio like we do. And so we have had instances where these great firms, and I, I love Co2, I love Tiger. I think they're they're great teams. They they're very good at what they do. But just because they're pricing something at X doesn't mean that that price makes sense for us bedrock. And so part of the thing that's really tricky is. We get it's obviously exciting to get like an amazing up round on a position where we had high conviction. We're there very early when it was counter narrative, but we just try and like do all of the work ourselves and pretend as if the decision is us leading a preemptive round at that price. That's kind of the like psychological filter we try and have internally is would we lead a preemptive round at this price if this other firm was not at the table? And only if we get to a yes on that question. Do we consider, okay, is this pro rata? Is this super pro rata? Is this something different? So that's been a big change. You can't have that shortcut of financing velocity, financing momentum. Uh, you really have to underwrite the actual traction and what you as a firm independently believe about a company. You can't rely on the market signals anymore. Beyond just Tiger and Co2 and some D1 and some of these big funders, the way we viewed the market is there's almost three categories. There's the small cap, which tend to be sub $200 million funds investing primarily at seed and series A. There's folks that are mid cap. Oftentimes they are sector focused or they have a certain investment thesis. And then there's the large cap, which as you mentioned, are playing a very different game. Andreessen, 
for example, is close to $30 billion in AUM. What's your assessment of the private markets today? And I know this is a really loaded question, but we've seen the public market multiples compress. And in fact, the mid-cap technology companies have been down almost 50%. How healthy is the market right now? Oh, it's super sick. It's super unhealthy. And it's been super unhealthy for, you know, I've been I've been beating the drum that it's been unhealthy for like over, over a year at this point, at least two years. I've, I've thought it's very unhealthy. And I, I, I do think that this ultimately does trickle down to valuations in the areas we play, like seed through series C, mostly here at Bedrock. It hasn't really trickled down yet. But all of that said, I actually don't care about the market's health today. I don't even care about the market's health two years from now. I care about the market's health. I, I don't actually even care about the market's health. I care about a company's health. That's my honest, that is my honest answer. So to me, if the underlying asset is a top quality asset, and if we are in at a narrative violation moment in time when the price makes a lot of sense because we are the only person at the only firm at a table or one of just a few firms at a table, and we're able to strike a deal with a great entrepreneur, ultimately, if that asset tracks, if that company tracks over years, decades, we're going to do very well as bedrock. And so the market's health, it's fun to prog prognosticate on. It's fun to talk about. For what we do day to day here, I really don't think it matters. All that matters to me is we have to get into generational assets. And we, the only way that we can do it as bedrock, because we don't have $30 billion and we don't have Sequoia's brand, the only way we can do it is rewrite the playbook every time, figure out a new formula every time when we find something that's exciting and get the conviction. It, it is kind of like this artisanal approach to this market in an increasingly institutionalized and formulaic type, type uh, MO amongst, amongst a lot of firms. For somebody that is starting a firm right now and looking around, and I agree that you can't, one, you can't time markets. Number two, a lot of the companies that you're investing today are going to have very little impact to what the market is doing at a whole, particularly the public markets. Now, it could have an effect on the amount of capital that is available for those companies as they move through the cycle. But if you were to look at venture today and say, these are the areas that I'm most excited about, as if you were an LP, right? You're, if you put yourself in the position of an LP, where do you still see areas of alpha? And where do you think the biggest risk lie? Yeah, I mean, I would say that growth stage venture is the, 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 risk, the riskiest area to play because that's where the valuation disconnect is, is the greatest between the public markets and the private markets where you've got the AR, particularly for enterprise. So I had to narrowly pinpoint the area I would avoid. It would be sort of pre-IPO growth stage enterprise SaaS. And then at the same time, there are counterexamples. There are amazing growth stage enterprise SaaS companies in the private markets that I'm excited about. So there certainly are great managers there, but sectorally, I'd avoid that. You know, I'm talking a bit of my own book here, but I do think early stage technology, before things are working, if you can find a manager or a set of managers that sort of thinks differently, even if they don't have a track record, around early stage technology and is able to build conviction when there aren't market signals, that's always going to do really well, regardless of the health of a market. If you're investing in early stage technology and you're able to pick and you're able to win, you're going to do just fine as a manager wherever the market's at. 
I think there are still some limited geographic ARBs, although that's closing pretty fast. And so there was sort of, you know, we, we did a deal in New Zealand during COVID, this company first AML, because we thought it was sort of this weird geographic ARB. Uh, we did a fintech thing in, um, in India. Uh, we similarly thought there was a geographic ARB around, around that one. In practice, I think those the geographic ARB thing is played out and, and all of the ge geographies are, are pretty highly valued at this point. So yeah, I mean, I would just be trying to find managers that I'm super excited about if I was a, an LP. I, you know, I, I'd say the extension of that is I do think that by the time any given sector is like a topic of conversation on, on, on your podcast or on anyone's podcast, it's probably a little bit too late. And so by the time anything is like categorized as like an amazing sector, I think it's probably a little bit too late to, to go after it. Yeah, and, and that usually happens. And there usually is a lot of energy that goes around things very quickly in today's world. Web3 is a great example, I think, of that in terms of how much capital is going into Web3 companies and the valuation a company can achieve just by slapping Web3 in its, in its own narrative. When... You think about your playbook, because we've been talking about Bedrock over the last three years, and it, it seems like the playbook's fairly unchanged, right? Looking at companies that have narrative violations, not being overly focused on what is happening around you to a certain degree, but are there areas of the playbook that have changed within Bedrock, given all the changes that have happened, both in the market as well as what you might have realized about yourselves? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the playbook has stayed pretty constant. The way that we make decisions has evolved a lot. So particularly around like the investing decisions and and when you're starting a firm, the number one thing you have to solve for is adverse selection on the on the investments. And so the question is always, why would an entrepreneur ever work with this sort of new no-name firm that like came out of nowhere, why would they ever take money from this firm? And so we were just obsessed with this adverse selection question the first two years of Bedrock. And it like really skewed our investing hyper, hyper into areas that were like very non-consensus. And so we did like a fair amount of, you know, lower margin stuff, like small check sizes, but on deal volume, from a deal volume standpoint, you know, Bedrock Fund One, not everything in there is like high margin, pure play, software. But we were obsessed with this question of adverse selection. Now we're less worried about that. Now we're much more worried about missing something that is right in front of us because we make the wrong decision. And this has happened to us time and time again. You know, we were sitting for lunch with, with Dylan Field, the Figma founder in 2018. We could, have we could have led around at $400 million. We talked ourselves out of it. You know, we, were, we had an opportunity to lead. I, we, could have, we could have invested in, there's like seven or eight examples like that that haunt us because we got the decision wrong uh, and we chose not to invest when we had an opportunity. And so the biggest thing that's changed is we have litigated these past decisions so intensively internally so that we always are upping our game on decision quality, on, on making the right investment decisions. And we're not as concerned about adverse selection. We're concerned about talking ourselves out of things that we should actually do when the opportunity is sitting right in front of us. Are there any commonalities for those deals that you talked yourself out of in why you made that decision at the time? I mean, I'm going to give you a super cop-out one. It's, it's we overthought it. And I, I do think that there is this huge failure mode of, of venture capital where th there's a sense which almost the smarter one is 
uh, the less likely one is to be successful or something like that. And I think maybe that changes in a down, in a down market. And I, I really do hope that we are entering a bit of a crash because, or a, a major crash at, just from a bedrock standpoint. I don't want the carnage for everyday people and investors in the market, but just for us, I feel like we will thrive in a, in a downturn, but, uh, yeah, it's overthinking it. It's, it's being too smart for your own good. Uh, and actually some of the best VCs I know, like they're, they're just not that smart. They sort of YOLO it and they're great. They do a wonderful job and uh, they don't overthink it. And we, our failure mode has been, our failure mode has been overthinking things and talking ourselves out of things. Uh, I've, I don't regret any of the major investments we've made. Maybe there's one or two. Let me adjust that answer. I maybe one or two I regret. What I do regret is the major investments we could have made that we didn't. And, and I think everyone has an anti-portfolio and there's so many firms that if you look at their anti-portfolio, it's actually better than their real portfolio. But when you look at the deals that you did miss and you sort of mentioned like, hey, we overthought it. How do you avoid that in the future? And is there some, because there is this balance of like, hey, we still want to do our diligence. We need to think through these things. But how do you know when you're overthinking it versus just making a decision without, you know, the proper thought behind it? Because I still think that's necessary, of course. Self-awareness is part one, two, and three of the answer. And so it's explicitly putting on the table the question, are we overthinking it? And so there's a certain stage at which, okay, we've done the diligence. One of us was really passionate or two of us are really passionate or three of us are really passionate about a given company. We've then spent like, you know, several weeks or several days on deep diligence, on interviewing the team, on debating internally. And if we still haven't gotten to a outcome of like, we're going to pass, we're going to issue a term sheet. One of us now does, we've been trained to ask the question, are we overthinking this? Let's stop work, total and complete shutdown on the work we're doing uh, and ask ourselves the question, are we overthinking it? Should we just be doing this? Like, why are we debating it so so intensely? So yeah, it's like actually asking that question and yeah, and, and trying to reconstruct things from there. So, so shifting away from the investment side for a second, both you and Eric have had these entrepreneurial journeys and working with companies. And then you worked at an institutional shop in Founders Fund for a long time where you didn't have to do certain things. You didn't have to fundraise. You didn't have the client relationships to the extent you did now, what have you learned over the last three years in terms of firm building that going into it, maybe you either underestimated or overestimated? Um, I'd say the biggest one is I have this sort of uh, analogy. I sort of, I analogize like founding a firm to sort of you, the founders of the firm are sort of like a power plant for like everyone around you. You have to give energy, not only to your entrepreneurs, but also to your clients, to your, to your team. There's so much energy that, you know, I day to day have to like help imbue others with, which is very different from being part of just a machine that's working where you're just writing, you know, a few checks a year. You have to be a source of energy. One thing that always comes up is, is somebody starting a firm is just like where they spend their time. And, and I feel like this is still a little bit of a black box. But if you were to take us inside baseball of what an average week looks like, because you have your clients, you have sourcing new opportunities, it's analyzing deals, it's probably bringing talent onto the, onto the firm. How do you spend your time? I mean, every, every week is different. It depends on what our priority is on a, in, a, in a given week. It is, it is much more varied than, uh, than working, at a, working at a firm. 
I'd say that I've built with Eric, what we've built here at Bedrock is a structure and an amazing organization, a small but mighty team that enables us to spend 80% of our time either sourcing new prospective investments or helping existing, you know, we don't, we don't really purport to offer a tremendous amount of value, but when we do offer value, we like it to be really high value. So helping existing investments on high leverage things, that is 80% of my time averaged out. That said, there could be like a week where there's a fire at a portfolio company. And I'm hundred percent helping that entrepreneur fight that fire. There could be a month where like, we, uh, you know, we did a thing where we went really deep on a specific sector outside of the U.S. And Spencer and I were traveling around for a month, um, digging into that sector. And I wasn't doing things like responding to inquiries from clients. But we've built a team now with Thomas, our CFO, Spencer, uh, Tyler, our creative director, said we've uh, our, you know, the, our administrative support team, where we really are as an investment team, freed up to mostly focus on investing. And I would. It urge emerging managers and someone starting a, a firm for the first time to try to get to that point as quickly as possible. Because the huge unfair advantage that the incumbent amazing firms have, I think is not brand. I don't think it's client relationships. I don't think it's brand. I, don't, I, I actually think it's that they have the back office and the infrastructure team for the investment team to just be focused on investing. And like you need to get to that point as fast as you can as an emerging manager. Yeah, which of course can be a challenge for most because they don't have particularly the the AUM or the management fees to bring it. So you have to outsource a lot of those things. But I, I'd love to get to our final section, which is, you know, me asking you three rapid fire questions. And I'd love to get your thoughts on those. So the first question I have is just around your career. And you've had all these experiences and you've worked with some amazing people, but what is the most impactful piece of career advice that you've ever gotten? I heavily discount advice, but uh, I did have a lot of friends that thought the decision to start Bedrock was a bad one and that I, I had an amazing job that I should never leave uh, my prior firm. And I have one friend in particular. Uh, I'm not going to say who it is today, but uh, this person was a guest on one of your prior podcasts who was like, absolute no-brainer that you should do this. Here's like the three reasons why. And uh, that was great advice. I'm glad, I, I'm glad that I allowed their advice to help reinforce my decision. Actually shifting from a VC standpoint, because you have been a VC for a long time, what do you think is the most underestimated quality of a great VC? People use the word empathy, but I actually don't think it's quote unquote empathy. I think it's actually, you don't have to empathize with an entrepreneur to like actually deconstruct what makes them tick what are they trying to do in the world? And like, who are they as a person? I don't have to empathize with them to do that. And I think very few people on the planet have this ability to spend a short period of time with someone else and really understand who that person is and why they're going to be able to self-actualize through the business they're building with people from all walks of life, all different backgrounds, like all sorts of diverse founders, like time and time again, being able to understand and unpack who those entrepreneurs are, very rare. And I think it's critically important for venture capital. So my final question, and you, you know, it's interesting because you did say you heavily discount advice in general, but I know you have a lot of people and, and many people have personal board of directors, but is there somebody across your life, across your career that's made the most impact on you? And if so, who is it and how did they impact 
and make you who you are today? The rea- the reality is I don't have an answer to that question. I, I sort of have lots of people that inspire me in different ways. I don't think that um, there's any one person in particular, because if I gave one name, I'd be excluding 15 other people. I stand on the shoulders of giants. So many people have helped me along the way. Uh, so many people have given me advice. So many people have been there when I needed someone to talk to in my personal life, in my professional life. I'm grateful to all of them. Uh, and I, it's hard to single out just one. I know that that's a cop-out answer, but it, it is the reality. No, I, I think it's, I mean, to a certain degree, I think that's true for for a lot of us where we've had so many people impact our lives. And it's, it is hard to sometimes single out. This has been a lot of fun, Jeff, and I really appreciate you you coming on the show and sharing your thoughts. And uh, congratulations on, you know, the early success. I know it's only three years in, but you guys have done spectacular. So thank you again. Congrats to you, Samir. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jeff. To learn more about him or Bedrock, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.